The scripture this morning is James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The kids can be dismissed for grace for kids. Uh, Matt, maybe after this service, you could, it was hard to pick out which one you were in that picture. Maybe maybe you could show us later. So growing up, I went through the Ida public school system. Uh, I had principals with the unfortunate names of Mr. Cunningham, Mr. Weens, and Mr. Dick. I had dozens of teachers that tried to teach me. (laughs) Under their leadership, I went to school for nine months of the year. This is, I think this math is right. Nine months of the year for six hours a day, five days a week over the course of 13 years. Uh, I think that works out to be 2,300 days or 14,000 hours or most appropriately for how it felt, 840,000 minutes. Time I spent in the classroom, aside from gym, on the non-square dancing days at least, uh, I have only two distinct memories of looking forward to going to class. One was for a week in elementary school, fourth grade, Mrs. Guess. We had what was called mini society, and you would uh, create, each kid had to create their own business, I guess, throughout the week. And then on Friday, everybody opened their business uh, up to the other kids in the class, and then your parents could come in. I, I used a, I made banners on a dot matrix printer for anyone who wanted to purchase one. I sold a few for sure. Uh, and then the other, the only other time I remember in 840,000 minutes of school that I enjoyed uh, was physics for a, a few days. Um, Mr. Radshide had us build self-propelled cars with, uh, what are those, uh, you're, like recipes, what, what's that called? Those cards you write recipes on. Index cards. You got index cards, straws, paper clips, and rubber bands. And that, that was a lot of fun. It was to see how far you could get the car to go. Uh, and so there's probably a few more. I, I'm just not remembering. That's sort of my thing is not remembering things. But um, but that's about it. <laughs> uh, generously, then, there's a few hundred of the 840,000 minutes that I liked. I had a distant, vague sense that it was right to be there-ish. Um, but I was true, truly only there because my parents made me go. As you can imagine, that made learning pretty difficult and my attitude pretty bad. Uh, Even if I got decent grades, conduct was not among them. Unfortunately, though, what's the point of this? Uh, For many, including myself, more times than I would like to admit, that's a lot like our approach to dealing with sin. We're Christians, so we know we should care about it. We kind of do. So we make an effort at times to stop sinning, but if we're being honest, 
All too often our days are marked by doing the things we want to do and feeling mostly resentment toward anything. Parents, friends, conscience, preaching we hear on Sunday, Sunday school classes, Bible reading that gets in the way of the things we wish we could be doing. Occasionally we sometimes feel a measure of gladness and fighting back sin, but overall it's an act of discipline, not delight. But grace for those of you, for those of us who long to long for righteousness, for those of us who are tired of trying to muscle our way out of sin, for those of us who are who, who genuinely want to follow Jesus, even though our, our flesh so often pulls so hard in the other direction, this is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. Because in it, James gives us two of the most powerful tools, two of the most powerful weapons available for the fight against sin, the fight to put sin to death. The first we've already seen in a little bit different form, and that is the sanctifying power of a superior affection. And the second is new to James, and it is a description of the life cycle of sin. Now here's the thing. Uh, the the uh, guy we bought our house from lives around the corner now. The shop at our house is about three times the size of his new shop. And so since we moved in, he's brought boxes of old tools, 50, 60-year-old tools to me uh, to keep if I want. And I would say a full quarter of those tools, I have no idea what they are. I, I have no idea what they're for. Uh, and so I, I have no I, I have no knowledge of how I would use them if uh, if I wanted to. Here's the thing. This is a remarkable passage. It really is. But only if you mean to make war on your sin. Otherwise, it's information and, you know, you can stick it in your back pocket or something like that. But this is only going to, it's going to be remarkable. If you're in that battle, if you're feeling the weight of sin, if you're longing to see it leave you, man, this, this is a significant passage. This is bullets for your gun. It's the whole gun. It, it, it's God's means, at least in two ways, of, of putting your sin to death, not just stuffing it in a closet only to have it come back out later. This is God's means of putting sin to death, but you have to want to do that. And so let's pray for that. <laughs> the main prayer is, God, give me a view of my sin that's accurate and appropriate. And, and on the other end, give me a view of you and your promises and your rewards that's accurate and appropriate that we might kill sin and love righteousness. So let's pray. God, please, at the end of this, maybe through it, hopefully through it, but definitely at the end of it, let us truly cry out, what, what gifts of grace? <laughs> what gifts of grace? This, this life is war. This life is tension. There's a kind of peace and a kind of joy that surpasses understanding and cuts through our circumstances. But this life, until Christ returns, or we die to go home and be with him, is war. It's, it's inefficient. It's uncomfortable. It's, it is trial. It is temptation. It is difficulty. All, all in the knowledge that you are with us, that you are greater than all of this, that on the cross Jesus dealt a decisive blow to sin and death. All in that, everything is built on that. But we're in 
in a world experiencing birth pangs and we're feeling those birth pangs. There's a new heavens and a new earth that you have promised that is certain. But in the meantime, we're aliens and strangers, we're sojourners, we're wanderers. And on top of all of that, our old sinful nature keeps welling up at times. It, it, it keeps coming back to tempt us. We need no longer give in to it, but it, it still has a kind of relentlessness. That Pray this morning you'd help us to long increasingly for it to be done away with. Thank you for the tools, the instruments of war that you have given us. Ca- cause us to hate our sins such that we're unbelievably thankful like a warrior who's out of bullets and finds finds a box of ammunition that you might continue in the fight. Help us to see this passage in that way. It is what it is. So help us to see it that way and, and love it for what it is and be grateful to you that you give us all that we need to live in this world in a manner pleasing to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most significant principles, there's, there's two There's two instruments of war uh, that you're going to get. The first one is the sanctifying power of a superior affection. A lot of words. I'll tell you what that means. Hopefully, you're at least somewhat familiar with that already from James. And if you've been at Grace, you've at least heard the concept, if not those terms. But one of the most significant principles of the Christian's war on sin and life in Christ is the sanctifying power of a superior affection. As I mentioned, James has already introduced this principle to us back in verses 2 through 4 in commanding his readers to count their trials as all joy. James tells them how and why. Because it is through the pain of trial that God often gives his greatest gifts. In other words, your trials are real and the pain that comes with them is real. So how could you possibly endure them in all joy? And the answer is, there are pleasures forevermore on the other side of this. God is working something in you that is greater than that which he's taking from you through your trials. Trials are hard, James understood. That's what makes them trials. But the cost they extract doesn't compare to the reward they bring when we endure them in faith. You know that, you've heard that. To believe that is to be able to not merely endure trials, James says, but to count them as all joy. There is a sanctifying, there is sanctifying power in a superior pleasure. When you know that the pleasure of enduring trials and faith brings, that it is so much greater than whatever pain comes from them, you can endure and endure in faith and even in all joy. So in this passage, James applies the same principle in a different kind of trial in our fight against sin. Grace, the point is that God hasn't called us. you got you got to hear this, okay? The point is that God hasn't called us to fight sin by just trying harder. You've done that. I've done that. It works a little bit for a little bit, but it won't work overall. That is not the tool that God has given you to just... Try harder. We're not meant to kill sin by self-sacrificing the good things that we want for the lesser but nobler things that God wants. The sanctifying power of a superior affection highlights the fact that everything God commands is immeasurably greater and more satisfying than anything else we might want. We've got to learn that. It's true. We've got to learn that. 
Sin has blinded us to the goodness of God's commands. That's part of the disgusting effect of sin. It certainly kills us, but it also blinds us to the goodness of God's command. So instead of looking at that which is truly beautiful and seeing it as beautiful, it looks ugly. And when we look at something ugly, instead of being disgusted by it, it looks beautiful. That's the sick scheme of sin. Sin has blinded us to the goodness of God's commands, but God is in the business of giving sight to the blind. We are meant to fight sin then by the spirit-empowered trust in God, by spirit-empowered trust in God that the things he's called us to are the only path to the things we go to sin for, namely true and lasting satisfaction. So again, we get another version of that principle, the sanctifying power of superior affection at the beginning of our passage for this morning. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You're in a trial, it's hard. Why not just get out? Well, because blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the key terms in this passage, steadfast, trial, test, are all found in verses 2 through 4 as well. The parallel is unmistakable. In the opening passage, the trials and tests were general. That is, any trials a brother might endure. But verses 13 to 15 make it plain that this is talking about a specific set of trials and tests, namely those involved in the temptation to sin. So how do God's people stand up against it? How do God's people stand up against sin's unending assault? And conversely, how do we not just resist sin, but love and walk in righteousness? In our passage, this we see that both sin and righteousness make promises. You're, you're tempted to give in your sin and occasionally do because it makes promises, big promises to you. God makes promises as well, and we're continuously forced to choose between them. How do you decide? How do you choose, especially in the moment? Well, one significant part of the answer is that we keep in mind what sin really offers, rather what sin really delivers, and what righteousness really delivers. In other words, once again, James is trying to help us by giving us a proper appraisal of the worth of sin and the worth of righteousness. You ever seen the movie A Christmas Story? You'll shoot your eye out, Ralphie, right? Uh, in, in, in this story, it's a, if you're not familiar with it, it's a story of a, a Midwestern, young Midwestern bo- uh, boy's view of life around Christmas time. It's set in the 1940s. It has nothing to do with Christ or really Christmas, but it does a remarkable job of capturing the secular Christmas spirit still common to many Americans today. One particular storyline has always stuck with me and always listen to radio programs. That was a, a fun way to pass time back then. Uh, in the, 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 this Ralphie's favorite was the little orphan Annie radio program. I'm not going to get all the details right. I didn't bother to look it all up. This is at least my memory of the the movie, if not the actual movie. Um, but the gist of it is that the main uh, the program's main sponsor. Do you remember what it was? Ovaltine, right? Chocolate milk mix for you kids that don't know what I'm talking about. 
uh, it had a secret message that required a special ring to decode. All right, so you can, right? I mean, what kid doesn't want like secret messages and a way to decode them and, and the ability, at least in the movie, to, to help save little orphan Annie who had been captured. You can feel this, right? And, and I'm not doing a great job of it, but in the movie, it's almost palpable. You're like, Ralphie, you know, get this. But you also know something else is going on. To get the ring, Ralphie, of course, needed to drink a certain amount of Ovaltine and get the proof of purchase and send them in or the receipts. And, and so his eagerness to get the ring and discover the message, you just you feel it more and more. And he checks. Oh, you see this several times. He comes home from school, checks the mailbox. I love this. It's wrong. Don't do this. But it's funny because I would do the same thing. He checks it. It's filled with mail. It's not the mail he wants. So he just shuts it rather than bring it in and. He's frustrated. Well, eventually it comes, gets the ring. You see, it's the bathroom, right? I think he locks himself in the bathroom. His brother's banging on the door, has to go. Just wait. There's, I'm picturing sweat coming down. He's almost there. And at the end of the day, so, so again, the point is he just wanted this so badly and wanted to know the message. And what was the message? Drink more Ovaltine. All right, that's what sin is. That is. That's what sin is. It promises something great, and in the end, it's drink more Ovaltine. It's to cut through the lies of the world, our flesh, and the devil. In simplest terms, James tells us that whatever pleasures sin promises, drink more Ovaltine, its final end is death. Every single time you are faced with the question of whether to give in to sin or remain faithful in righteousness, you have to remember that the end of sin is death. Come back to that in a little bit. While whatever sacrifices righteousness requires, its final end is the crown of life. I'll tell you more about that in a second as well. But the main point for us to see here is to know that the true payout of sin is at best temporary happiness. At best, it's temporary happiness. Although Ralphie didn't have a whole lot of happiness there. At best, it's temporary happiness ending in death. And the true payout of righteousness is at worst temporary trial ending in the crown of life. To understand that is to be faced every time you are tempted to sin with the easiest choice in the world. This is the sanctifying power of a superior affection. The only way the choice is hard is when we have a wrong evaluation of the worth of what sin offers versus what righteousness offers, which is exactly what we have apart from Christ and only gradually get back in Christ. James is writing to help us get it back. Again, the thing we cannot miss from the opening line of our passage is that the reward of righteousness is so much greater than anything and everything sin can offer that if we really understood that, we would never choose sin. And wielded rightly, this is an unbelievably powerful weapon to put sin to death. To help you appreciate what we're really talking about here and to make sure you don't think I'm overstating the value of the crown of life, It's good to ask, what exactly is that? Well, grace, a a crown, especially as it was understood in this time, was an emblem of majesty. It belongs only to true sons and daughters, to true kings, to true rulers and their family. 
And the crown of life belongs only to true, true sons and daughters of the only true king. And like a wedding, a wedding ring, the circular shape of a crown points to its permanence. For earthly rulers, it is a declaration of the desire for a permanent earthly kingdom. But for Christ and his followers, it is a fitting symbol for a truly permanent reign. Combined, it is a clear, combined, it is clear that a crown signifies victory. Whether given to a king who has conquered or a victorious athlete, crowns did not go to those who have lost. The crown mentioned by James is the crown of life. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it is referred to as the crown of righteousness and the unfading crown of glory. In remaining faithful, in remaining faithful unto death, Jesus was given a crown of thorns before rising to the right hand of the Father to rule in power forever. And here's James's message. James's main point here is that God has promised that everyone who in this earth will put on the crown of thorns with Jesus to remain steadfast under trial and persecution and temptation. Everyone who loves and trusts God enough to share Jesus' crown of thorns in this life will share his crown of life and righteousness and glory forever in the next. And so the end of faithfulness through temptation to sin is everlasting life, while the end of giving in to sin is death. Do you want to kill your sin? Or do you at least want to want to kill your sin? One of the two inestimably powerful weapons James gives Christians for this battle is the specific promise of the superiority of everything God offers over and above the superiority of anything anyone else offers, over everything else. For all who endure trials and tests and temptations in faith and in love, the everlasting crown of life. So what do you do then? According to this first weapon of war, what do you do when you're going about life and sin presents itself and you're tempted to choose it instead of the righteousness that God requires? The first thing you do according to this passage is remember the crown of life. Draw to mind the Bible's promises and descriptions of it for those who remain steadfast under trial. Pray and ask God to help you believe God's word and not the current desire of your flesh. It's lying to you. Pray and ask God to help you see your options as they truly are. Life and faithfulness or death and rebellion. Gather your fellow fighters to pray with you and for you, to remind you of the truth and to pick you up when you fall, and then walk by faith in the strength God provides and the knowledge that every trial in life produces greater holiness and every trial in death produces the crown of life. You with me, Grace? This is a remarkably powerful weapon. It is what ultimately kills sin. Believing that fully is what will preserve us in righteousness forever in heaven. Again, I've said this before, but you need to hear it again. Most of the things, we'll talk about this in the second weapon as well, but most of the things that lead us to temptation on earth will be present in heaven. Did you ever think about that? Most of the things that lead us into temptation on earth will be present in heaven. It's not so much that those things will be gone, It's that our desire for them will be gone. We'll come back to that. But ultimately what happens is we see in heaven God as he truly is forever and ever. And so the appetite for anything else is gone forever and ever. That's awesome. 
But as helpful and as significant as this weapon is, James gives us another. And it is a description of sin's life cycle. How, how interesting is that? How many of you thought of knowing sin's life cycle as a weapon to kill sin? Well, it is. It's a different kind of weapon. The first, the sanctifying power of a superior affection, is like being given the clearest possible description of the glory of victory and the agony of defeat, along with the promise that as long as you remain in the battle, you will win. That's a pretty powerful weapon. Here's what's at stake if you lose. Here's what's at stake if you win. And as long as you keep fighting in faith, you will win. It's guaranteed. That's a powerful weapon. That's the first. But the second is a little different. The second, understanding sin's life cycle, is like being given the enemy's playbook. You know what they're going to do. You know how they're going to work. You know what motivates them and where they're coming from. The first is more powerful, but the second is also significant. So what is the enemy's playbook? How does, how does sin work? How, how does it function in our lives? Verses 13 through 15 let us in on a good deal of it. Five things. You ready? Here they are. These are really important. God never tempts his people to sin. Sin tempts us to sin. Sin comes eventually from unchecked desire. Unchecked sin matures and mature sin kills. Let me say those again and I'm going to unpack each one of them and show you where I get it in the text. You got to get these, Grace. God never tempts people to sin. Sin tempts people to sin. Sin comes from unchecked desire. Unchecked sin matures and mature sin kills. That's the life cycle of sin. Let's look at each of those. God does not tempt. The first thing to see, now you got to picture yourself being pulled to sin. Okay, so you're best going to receive the rest of this sermon if you can draw to mind a normal temptation that you experience and listen through that lens. This isn't just theory. This is meant to be applied to our lives right now, today, and for the rest of our lives on earth. The first thing to see when you feel pulled towards sin is that God is not the one doing the pulling. James taught, as we just saw in 2 through 4, that the trials his readers were enduring, so these general trials, especially trials of persecution, were instruments of God for their sanctification. You with me? So he has just used almost the same language to talk in a different way. He said, these trials you're enduring, they're tools from God. Okay, so they probably were wondering as they experience temptation to sin, well, is that from God also? Is, is that from him? Well, James answers that question. Let no one say when he is tempted, verse 13, I am being tempted by God, and he'll tell you why. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Very simply, James emphatically rejects the idea that God ever tempts his people to sin. Evil has no appeal to God, and so he does not present it as a temptation to his people. Whenever you are tempted to give in to sin, fight it in part by remembering this is not from God. All right, here's the second part of sin's life cycle. If it is not from God, then where is it from? Where does it come from? In short, James tells us that temptation to specific sins, again, you're, you're going about life and the temptation comes to you to give in to sin, Temptation to specific sins comes when our old sinful nature wells up 
and tempts us to return to it. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and and enticed by, do you see it? His own desire. The picture James is painting here. Draw your sin to mind. the place where you're most commonly tempted. The picture James is painting here is that as you go through life, you will occasionally encounter something in the world. Maybe it's a person or an advertisement or an object or whatever. Or perhaps it's some memory from the past. Something will come to mind or be brought to mind. You have walked past that thing dozens of times. Uh, driving to work or walking around the office or whatever. You've, you've gone past that dozens of times with no issues. Or you haven't thought about that thing in weeks. And, and if you have, it didn't do anything. But this time, something's different. There's a, there's a desire there that you don't like and you don't want, but it's there. There's a pull that wasn't there before. James uses two words to describe that pull. He speaks of desires within us as luring and enticing. Both carry the idea of baiting. Fishermen, picture this. You have two purposes with whatever you're using on the end of your line. A fisherman, good fisherman, attempt to use the most effective bait possible to trick, that is to lure and attract, that is entice a fish. Just like that, though, the remnants of our sinful nature do that to us at times. Grace, this means, please hear this, no one can force you to sin. Your neighbors, your parents, your sibling, your spouse, your friend, your pastor, the person on the internet, and even Satan himself can act in evil ways around you and even want you to join them in their evil. They can do things intended to get you to act sinfully, but they cannot cause you to sin. I told Matt Nelson earlier, if I were a Puritan, I would add an hour to the sermon and I would really unpack this next sentence. But you only get a sentence because I'm not a Puritan. So here you go. Not only can can nothing outside of you force you to sin, James helps us to see that in the deepest sense, they cannot even truly tempt you to sin. Okay, at best, they give second, this is the Puritan distinction, second level temptation. All they can do is hold sin out to you, lie about it, and make it look as appealing as possible. Whatever real temptation you experience, however, comes not from without, but from within. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. That's the essence of the lingering effect of the sinful nature that is still in all of us until death or the return of Christ. And I said this before, but again, it's important for you to understand that this is why we will be able to walk in complete righteousness in heaven. Again, not because the the, the thing that leads to the temptation is necessarily gone, but that the all remnants of the sinful nature are gone. So the temptation we face comes not from God and not even from God's enemies, but from the luring and enticing work of the sinful desires that often lay dormant inside of us, but occasionally wake up to tempt us. All right, here's the third part. Sin comes from unchecked desire. So the, 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 I'll say in a second. Those are helpful to know about sin's tactics, the first two things, but there's more. As you all know, mere temptation isn't the end of our sinful desires. Those desires in us don't merely tempt us. 
Grace, we ought not to put ourselves in places or around people, it's the point of Psalm 1-1, where we know we're likely to be tempted by our own desires. To do so is to have already sinned by giving in to an earlier temptation. That's significant as well. That's puritanical as well, but that's all you get. But here's the thing. When we don't intentionally put ourselves in sin's way, but temptation still finds us, which it will in this life, the temptation itself is not sin. It comes from it, but it isn't yet. What we do next determines whether or not it will be. Look at 15. Then desire, so this desire that wells up in us, we didn't ask for it, didn't want it, not even totally sure where it came from, at least what part of our the remnants of our sinful nature, but then desire when it has conceived, and only when it has conceived, give birth, gives birth to sin. So James tells us that it is only when we allow that desire to go unchecked that it is able to give birth. The mere temptation is not the sin. The mere temptation, again, often comes out of nowhere. It is the giving in to the temptation that is sin for us. It is allowing that desire to take the next step. It is the second look. It is the click of a mouse. It is the careless word we utter, not the initial thought of doing so. When the desire is allowed to have its way, when we allow it to, that is sin. Desire, James tells us, and consent are sin's parents. You need both to make a sin, baby. There is great help in your fight to kill sin. And the knowledge that sin cannot be born in you, in Christ, if you do not allow your consent to come together with your temptation. It is good to know that God doesn't tempt us. It is also good to know that temptation comes from within. Knowing these things are tactically helpful, but this is where the real battle begins. Ladies, your, your husband fails to meet your expectations, perhaps sinfully so, and you feel the temptation to be disrespectful rise up from your own sinful nature. You realize that happened, now make war. Don't consent. Don't allow your temptation to breed with consent and make sin. Conceive sin. Even if your husband is wrong, and we often are, and even if his wrong hurts you, and it often does, and introduces you to temptation, which it often does, don't allow desire and consent to conceive sin in you. Turn your temptation back to God and ask him to strengthen you to obey. You are commanded to respect even when your husband isn't being particularly respectful. The gospel sends you on a rescue mission, not a vengeance mission or a justice mission. Remember God's promises to all who endure in faith for the crown of life and to all who abandon faith, death. You found out that your friend is talking about you negatively behind your back. You feel the temptation to let her have it or gossip about her as well. Make war. The temptation is there. Don't allow it to breed with consent. Don't consent to your sinful desires. Remember God's promises. Having committed to start each day in prayer and time in the Bible, you, you notice your phone. It's been there every morning, maybe, and, and you weren't tempted. But this morning, you're tempted. You notice your phone, and with it, the temptation to check the score or to check your schedule or to check your messages or, or whatever. Make war. Don't consent. And sin will be aborted. That leads to the next one. Unchecked sin matures. 
So that's not it either. Sin's life cycle goes on if we don't kill it before it conceives. If you fail to make war on your sin before it is born, it doesn't just go away. It grows and grows into greater and greater sin. Sin must be killed or eventually it will mature. It will continue to get more and more severe and more and more consuming. And that's why James says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, we'll see what happens in a minute. But the idea is sin can become fully grown. Again, it will not just fade away and it will not get weaker. Unaccosted, sin will become fiercer, a fiercer and fiercer enemy. It will become more and more vicious. It will become more and more dangerous, James tells us in a minute. One of the most powerful examples of this I've ever seen was in an article in Christianity Today. I think it was from like 1980 or something. And I'm making up the title. But it was something like The Anatomy of Lust. It chronicled one man's journey from a genuinely qualified leader. He might have been an elder in his church to a man broken and beaten by sexual sin that he nourished and matured over years. In the end, he says, the number of things that I've done that I couldn't even have imagined doing early on is staggering to me. The gospel broke through and he got help. But here's the point. It's not necessarily his specific sin, but the real power in the article is it's one of the most It's one of the clearest expectation of what sin always does. It's not his particular sin. It's how sin matures and then can kill if you let it go that way. I have copies if any of you want one. Now, again, the, the point is really powerful for that specific sin, but that's not the point. It's how sin grows and matures. James's description of the life cycle of sin is a call to war and a powerful to and a powerful tool to do so. And that leads us to the last idea here in the end of verse 15. There's one more aspect of sin's life cycle that James reveals to help us kill it. If you don't make war once temptation shows up, you'll need to make war once sin is born. And if you don't make war once sin is born, you'll need to make war against a more mature and formidable foe as it grows. And if you don't make war as it continues to grow, it will kill you, Grace. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. He's writing to believers, or at least people who profess faith in Christ. Our passage opened with the promise that all who persevere in faith through the trials and tests of temptation will receive the crown of life. Here James shows us the other end, the fate of those who are faithless in the face of trials and tests tied to temptation. Grace, the simple message of James is the basis for Puritan Owen John's famous line, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you are not a Christian, you're already dead in your sin. But if you are calling on the name of Jesus and believe you're saved, make war on on sin, for it has already made war on you. So how does all this work in light of the gospel? Aren't we dead to sin in Christ? If so, how can sin entice us? And isn't our salvation secured? And if so, how can sin kill us? Grace, when Jesus died on the cross, he secured sin's death. When we place our faith in Jesus, sin's mastery over us, the chains that sin has had to bind us are severed. 
we no longer must sin in Christ. But the final death of sin in us does not happen until we die or Christ returns. This means that Christians will still struggle with temptation and sin. For those who make war on it, God has promised us victory and reward. But for those, and here's the key, hear this. But for those who refuse to make war but allow sin to mature and fester, they will die, proving that their faith was never genuine. So how does knowing these things about sin and its life cycle help us to kill it and walk in righteousness? James shines a light on where sin comes from, how it grows, and what to do about it. And armed with this knowledge, the promises of God and the indwelling spirit and the people of God, we have all that we need to cut down sin before it kills us, for Christ has already cut it down. So you can stop committing a particular sin for a time with mere self-control. But you can only put sin to death by gaining a greater desire for something greater. That's James' first weapon. Who has tasted steak and still wants a hot dog? Who has seen the ocean and still longs for the rain puddle in your driveway? Who has seen the Rockies and still is amazed by the dirt hill out back? And who has tasted the glories of God and still longs for sin's lies? James's second weapon is to teach us about sin's life cycle. In so doing, he helps us to identify temptation and sin early on, that we might make war on it as it has already made war on us. Significantly, and again, hear this. All this is good news for non-Christians to hear. If your hope is not in Jesus, this is good for you to hear what's at stake, but it won't help you very much. These things are means of sanctification, not salvation. Before either of these will help you with sin, you must repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and receive him as Lord. The only way that making war on sin will ever be successful is because Christ has already secured the victory. And we gain access to that, not by fighting hard on our own. We can't. But by trusting in him to fight for us. So I'm I'm glad you're here if you're not a Christian. I'm glad you get to hear what's what's at stake. But before any of it is helpful to you, you need to trust in Christ. Receive him. James was writing here to Holy Spirit-filled Christians who were fighting for their forgiveness, not to help non-Christians to know how to be forgiven. To seek to apply these words of James as a non-Christian is futile. You must first turn to Christ in faith. And so, so Grace, what are you going to do with this? You have two weapons that are significant to help you make war in the way God has called you to. But remember the main banner. It's, it's, on the, it's on the screen. The main banner of James is that we need to remember that simply hearing this is not going to help. By God's grace, we must be doers also. We must use these weapons to make war. And we must do so in the knowledge that Jesus already secured our victory.